1: Hello listeners, thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, a members-only
0: newsletter, and members-only blog posts. For the month of February, take 5% off the regular membership price. Visit
1: thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code WORDS. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code WORDS.
0: Thank you. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the votes, and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our
1: podcast, Words Matter, where Kavita Patel and I meet together to talk about the important issues of the day. Kavita is, uh, as she was last week, off in Spain with her eight-year-old soccer star. We'll be back next week. So I'm here with our wonderful producer, Grant Haver to have a discussion today uh, about the uh, State of the Union, the message that Joe Biden gave, what the uh, implications are, as well as just analyzing uh, one hopes uh, in a fashion slightly deeper and a little bit more enlightening than some of the instant analysis that we saw on cable news. And uh, we'll try and focus on what it means for the future. So I'll start, Grant. I've now heard (laughs) 50 of these at least. And I have to say, going in, I had no expectation that I would come out saying this was perhaps the best of the State of the Union messages that I have seen, certainly in the top three. It's not what one would expect from Joe Biden. Biden in his early years, and I first met him when he first came to the Senate, when he was about three months into his tenure as a 30-year-old, so that's 50-plus years ago, and he was, at that point, a a very good speaker, quite an orator, although he always had the problem of logaria, which is going on and on and on. He always loved to hear his own voice, and now we can look back, actually, and say that a part of it flowed from the stuttering that uh, he had experienced uh, as a kid. But as he's gotten older, soaring rhetoric is not his trademark, and this speech was not soaring rhetoric. It was genuine Joe Biden, and just through the whole process, the substance of the speech the way he handled the uh, heckling, the way he dealt with the more emotionally wrenching moments with people in the audience who would lost children, who had you know suffered terribly. With all of that, we saw a vibrant, engaged, empathetic, and uh, powerful voice from Joe Biden. And as I said, you might not have expected that. And I think it's going to have some implications for the long run. Although, you know, just to step back for a minute, we also have to recognize that we're not going to get 150 million people watching the State of the Union message. It's a much smaller collection of people. It will be viewed through the tribal prism of a whole lot of people. And the commentary, obviously, on right-wing media was much more negative. They are not going to stop with the efforts pounding away to portray Biden as a doddering, senile old man, even though he showed in this speech that he was anything but. And uh, we're not going to get probably a decline in the number of columns like the one that appeared the day of the State of the Union from Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times saying, hey, please don't run again. That's not going to disappear. But he certainly blew away a lot of the low expectations and set the stage. And we can talk a little bit more about the substance. I I will say to people listening, the best analysis that I have seen came from James Fallows. Jim has a very good substack. He is a former speechwriter for Jimmy Carter, actually had a hand in a couple of State of the Union messages, and often does a kind of in-depth analysis of the speech, and he did a kind of edited version of the speech as delivered. There were two versions, the one on the teleprompter and then all the asides that he made, including, you know, some garbling of words here and there, but just sort of going through what it means and putting it into the context of other speeches. And of course, he gave it high marks as well. What did you think, Grant?
0: I generally agree with your analysis. To put this in context, how crazy it was that in the Obama administration, having one congressman call President Obama a liar and to now basically have the State of the Union be Prime Minister question time, where you can barely hear the speaker over the yelling of people in the audience, is a little wild. But it just goes to show how the media environment is changed. The State of the Union is not the only time we hear from President Biden. President Biden is communicating all of the time on Twitter, on Facebook, on cable. He is omnipresent in a way that previous presidents were not. And that's not to say that, you know, the most recent former president, president was not omnipresent. He was as well. But it just shows that speeches like this are not as important as they once were. And as well as I, I think he did, I agree that he exceeded the very low expectations of what needed to happen.
1: Just to follow up, that was Joe Wilson of South Carolina, who, of course, in the speech that Obama gave, shouted, you lie. What I found most interesting about that was that Republican leaders immediately pounced on Joe Wilson and said, no, that's not how we do things around here. Now, for Wilson, it was a big plus because he was a less than average member of Congress and suddenly became a celebrity in right wing circles, raised a couple of million dollars right away. But the reaction of the party leadership was shame on you, don't do that. The reaction of the party leadership to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, the hecklers out there, was Nothing. Crickets. Silence. We know that at least a couple of times, just watching that uh, Kevin McCarthy tried to shush them, he knew this was not a good thing. And he had actually cautioned or admonished his conference before the speech to have some decorum because he knew that that is not going to play well out there. But you're never going to see Kevin McCarthy Especially with his BFF Marjorie Taylor Greene, say afterwards, Shame on you. That was uh, a stain on our party and on our country. And that's a measure of where we've come as well. It's back to something we talk about frequently Daniel Patrick Moynihan's defining deviancy down. What was once a shock, shouting out, You lie at the President of the United States uh, during a speech by a member of Congress, is now, it appears, perfectly all right and par for the course. It is normal. Of course, the other aspect of that that was so striking, and now we're seeing the pushback, and this was a part of, I think, what made this quite a remarkable speech, when President Biden said, some Republicans, not all of you, not even a majority, say they want to sunset Social Security or make major changes in it. We saw Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, look shocked and uh, furious that anybody could uh, say something like that. That's when we had Marjorie Taylor Greene shout out, you're a liar, and all of those other things. But of course, now we have uh, all over the place the videotape of Mike Lee in 2010 saying, it's time to get rid of Social Security. And we know that Rick Scott, Who is a member of the Republican leadership, who was the chair of their senatorial campaign committee, flatly said last year we need to sunset every federal program every five years, meaning Social Security and Medicare would disappear unless they were positively reauthorized. And the goal was not to reauthorize them, it was either to take a meat axe to them or to get rid of them entirely. Now they're trying to backtrack. But uh, when President Biden said, I've got the evidence, I'll show it to you, and then had them all react that way so he could lead them into a box canyon and say, now we have a consensus. We have unanimity. No, we're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. It left them in a very bad place. And some of that may have been planned. But a lot of it, I don't know if he expected that kind of reaction, was a very clever move on a part of a guy who too many, including in his own party, uh, don't think is clever.
0: That was a wonderful rhetorical trap that he set. It definitely will be a clip that gets played long past anyone remembers anything else that he said in this speech. I think The FEC should have flagged Rick Scott for his massive donation to the Democratic Party with his foolish remarks around Social Security. I think it's clear that Trump's win uh, or part of Trump's appeal to Republicans was that he did away with the Paul Ryan consensus of tax cuts for the rich and cutting entitlements, although, you know, he didn't actually govern in that way. I think it just all goes back to, and even that clip for from Biden goes back to the fact that this is meant to be cut up, it's meant to be put on social media, and it's meant to fundraise from the base and not necessarily reach the median voter. And I think that's where Biden did the best. Biden talked about things that the average voter wants, that the average voter cares about. I mean, junk fees? Who was talking about junk fees? Everyone agrees junk fees are bad. Social security, protecting social security. He asked everyone to stand up and clap for seniors. Yes, that's like not the most exciting thing that we've ever heard in the world. It's not the most rousing political speech, but that's something 99% of Americans agree with. Support our seniors, cut away junk fees, tax billionaires. Those are the things that Joe Biden... Hit on during this speech that shows that he is in step with the average voter in a way that sometimes both parties show that they're not. You know, he was uh, making his appeal directly
1: to working class and middle class voters, which you're absolutely right is not something that Democrats have done so much in the past. I found it striking that when he talked about the junk fees, when he talked about Insulin at $35 a month capped for everyone, including the young people with type 1 diabetes. Republicans sat on their hands. They would not clap for insulin at an affordable price with 10% of the population having diabetes, which means another 30% have family members with diabetes. And my guess is that we will see some clips of that. The president saying, Let's all get behind making sure that no one has to pay more than $35 a month for life saving diabetes and showing Republicans sitting there not even applauding. The junk fee stuff I found particularly interesting. Many years ago, Al Franken did a book called Why Not Me, which was a fanciful tale of how he became president in 2000, beating Al Gore in the primaries. And in that book, I am his campaign manager. He portrays a bombastic Donald Trump-like populist thug, actually, while I'm constantly trying to keep him from doing illegal things. But when we sat down, it was Al Howard Feynman, the great journalist now struggling with health issues, Mandy Grunwald and me, to figure out how could you possibly run a campaign where you could beat the vice president al gore in the primaries and howard came up with the theme which was high atm fees back in 2000 and it seemed absurd but those things hit people just as all these other junk fees do every once in a while just like uh, so many others i forget to pay the credit card bill on time and pay it a day late and get hit with a $29 fee You know, everybody ends up, uh, or large numbers of people end up with those things, and that's in their wheelhouse. The other thing that I found so striking, and it's a change from what I think was the biggest mistake domestically that Biden made in his first two years, was that he kept bringing up these other programs that are wildly popular among Democrats, Republicans, and independents, including child tax credits child care community college at an affordable rate preschool and they didn't applaud at all which means that they oppose these things that are popular even among their own constituents and when he promoted the blockbuster build back better bill instead of breaking it down parsing it out to those elements that are all very popular he made it a slogan that didn't mean anything to people, build back better. And the frame of it became for journalists, is it going to be 3.2 trillion? What about 2 trillion? How are you going to get Joe Manchin on board? All the strategic and tactical stuff, almost the horse race stuff. And for Republicans, it gave, gave them an opening to say, this is just more big government and big spending. And now he's back to what I think is the appropriate strategic move, which is you promote each of these programs. You get bills up in the Senate to make permanent the child tax credit, to have reduced rates or free community college, the biggest jobs program that you can do, which is childcare at an affordable rate so that people who need two incomes can uh, be able to do it, and let them vote against it and filibuster those things and you're going to be, I think, on a path to having a lot of very positive themes leading into 2024. But also, at some point, you may be able to get some of these things done, which would be good for the country.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Focusing on popular things that impact real people's lives has been what the Democratic Party is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be helping the working Man and woman, we're supposed to be about trying to make this country a better place. And every time that we can do that, that we can show that we're the party of sanity, we're the party of people who go to work every day for a living, we're the party of fixing things, and then pointing at the uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders normal versus crazy framing and say who really is the crazy one is a winning day for for Joe Biden. I do want to ask, though, do you think that there were some things missing from the speech? I thought abortion got very little play for as much play as it got in the midterms. And I know this is a, a topic that Joe Biden is kind of ill footed on because of his previous stances, because of his Catholicism. What did you think of that? And did you think anything was really missing?
1: You know, I didn't actually, Grant. This is. An issue that is going to, I think, be hugely significant in 2024 as it was in 2022. And it was interesting, of course, that going into the election, where so many in the media were pounding away at the rev- red wave expectations and poo pooing the notion, including the pollsters, that abortion would actually mean anything. Now, in retrospect, we can see that it was very important. What we also see is that in many states, and even more broadly, the right is doubling down on this issue, even though it goes against what the vast majority of Americans want, including some of their own voters. And I will say that, you know, lurking in the background, and this was something, a very powerful and and chilling piece by Dahlia Lithwick and a colleague, Robert Stern in, in Slate, that there's this... Judge in Amarillo, Texas, perhaps the most lunatic radical on the bench, but the only judge in Amarillo at this point, who's taking up a case that very likely is going to result in a nationwide ban on the abortion pill. Now, the majority of abortions in the country, including, of course, in all the blue states, are done by pill rather than by surgical procedure. If you do away with it, it's going to create chaos all across the country. It, of course, moves away from the idea that was the theme of, of the quote-unquote pro-life movement for so long, return it to the states. It's trying to overrule the states. And it's not clear, even though there's no standing here that should be applied, it is an outrage for a judge to overrule the FDA on what is safe in a, a prescription medicine. but. Who knows what the Supreme Court would do with it? Now, all of that is a predicate to get back to your question. I don't think that it would have made a lot of sense for Joe Biden to spend five minutes of his hour and 20 minute speech on abortion now. The issue is there. Everybody knows it. He had to bring it up, he had to talk about reproductive rights and freedoms. But I didn't think he needed to do more on that unless it was warning what would happen if things went further. Now, I will say, if I had been writing the speech, one of the things that I might have done with the guests in the audience is to bring in a woman who was having a miscarriage, didn't want it, but was having a miscarriage, and was bleeding profusely, and the doctor would not treat her out of fear that he could be arrested, that it was against the law in a state like Texas. I might have done that. But otherwise, I thought you need to raise this issue and show where you stand, but you don't need to go uh, further on that front.
0: I think for me, you know, as a foreign policy nerd, this is often the the one time we get foreign policy in in the limelight. there, There are has been a lot of conversation that there wasn't a lot of foreign policy in the speech. People are saying it was it was all kind of at the end where he talked about Ukraine for a little bit, talked about China uh, for a little bit. He definitely didn't harp on the democracy versus autocracy framing that he has used before. I think some of that's shifted because of the the Saudi issues and other things. He hasn't hit on foreign policy for the middle class, which I think was an academic thing that Jake Sullivan did prior to coming into the uh, administration is now kind of not thought about in the same way. But I actually think there was quite a number of foreign policy issues in the speech, and they were primarily at the very beginning when he was talking about made in America. Joe Biden said over and over, uh, as sort of a, a framing for what he was about to say, he would say, People don't want me to say this, or, or People don't want me to announce that we're going to have stuff made in America. And that obviously had massive applause in the audience. But who are those people? No one in the room. No one in the United States. It's France. It's Germany. Those are the people that don't want to say it's made in America. It's the foreign policy nerds in Foggy Bottom because. It puts us in a bad situation with our friends. We already know that we're moving and decoupling from China. Whether we want to or not, businesses are pulling out. The U.S. is putting sanctions on high tech. We are slowly moving away from them as a vendor of choice. But we need to hug our friends. We need to hug Mexico and Canada. We need to hug France and Germany and constantly harping on Made in America makes those relationships harder. And I know that this is going to continue to be an issue that we work on in the future. I know some French and German diplomats are coming to talk to Janet Yellen and um, Gina Raimondo about these issues. It's going to continue to be something we work on. But he could have said, we're going to work with our partners. We're going to make a bunch of stuff in America, and we're going to make sure that Mexico and Canada are along for the ride. But he didn't. And I think that was very interesting. And as we continue to move in a direction towards industrial policy, which has its benefits, has its downfalls, I think the protectionism piece of that is really interesting as going to continue to be a theme for both right and left moving forward. What did you think about the economic portions of the speech?
1: And I think you're exactly right, Grant. And I actually winced a little when I heard that. I knew it would get all the great applause lines, but The fact is, we're not going to be able to do that in many cases, even if we wanted to, because some of the things that we're going to need in the manufacturing arena are just not manufactured here. At the same time, it means prices are going to be higher, because if you're going to use parts made in the United States instead of parts made in China or Vietnam, if you're going to use American products as opposed to those that are done more cheaply and efficiently in Canada or Mexico or France, you're going to pay more. But you know, at some point, we're going to get the stories saying, wait a minute, you said everything would be made in America, but, and so they'll pay a price for it. So it's a, You get the applause line, but it's not going to be reflected in policy and shouldn't be reflected entirely in policy. So that was one part that gave me some qualms. I do not blame him for not focusing more on foreign policy. This is a chance to do a couple of things that are necessary. We have had some incredibly positive economic news in the last couple of months that is, in many respects, unexpected news. You know, you want to, and yet it's not reflected in Biden's approval, which has continued to hover right around 41, 42, 43 percent, that you have the lowest unemployment rate since 1969, that the expectation that we would be dealing with runaway inflation, that the only way to cope with it, as Larry Summers said, was going to be either one year at 10 percent unemployment or two years at 7% unemployment, that the core inflation seems to be coming down significantly, that there is a very good chance, unless the Fed overreacts, that we can avoid a recession and avoid stagflation. All of that you want to emphasize over and over. You want to do a little bit of a victory dance and at least frame it with all the positive things that have happened. And I'm Perfectly comfortable with that and with talking about all the things you've done, saying repeatedly the job isn't done, knowing that with a Republican House, you're not going to get any significant legislation, putting some pressure on them, but also getting back to what we were talking about earlier, talking about all of the really popular things that are a part of the job not being done and putting the onus on Republicans for blocking those popular things. All of that at this point is more of a priority for a speech than even talking about the dangers to democracy. And of course, if you're going to talk about the dangers to democracy, it also means you're going to get into some uncomfortable territory, like talking about Netanyahu and Israel. So, uh, you know, that I think makes sense. You need to, he needed to talk about Ukraine, he needed to talk about China. I noticed that the Chinese were not happy with what he said. But of course, that's just to be expected. It was interesting that he didn't use the word balloon, but he certainly referred to uh, what happened there. Um, And uh, uh, that's another thing that'll be interesting. The Republicans are threatening to have hearings on what they view as this weak need response to this threat from China. But if they do hold a hearing, that's going to be as difficult for them as Social Security and Medicare. So I I think that was done pretty deftly, actually. Now, the other thing I would say, though, Grant, is he did something that I wanted him to do, but feared he would not, which is on the debt ceiling, which is to note, first of all, the truth, which is that he has reduced the debt by almost $2 trillion while Donald Trump is responsible for more than 25% of all of the debt built up over more than 200 years in the United States, and that Republicans who are now moaning and groaning about the debt voted three times for clean debt ceiling increases. They didn't like that at all, but they didn't like it because it's true. And yet we also know that we've got the debt ceiling issue. Ahead, that Republicans are demanding big spending cuts in return for supporting the debt ceiling increase. But if you take Social Security and Medicare off the table, as he forced them to do in this instance, you're not left with very much that you can do. And if you take defense off the table, which most Republicans will agree with, although some want to cut all the spending for Ukraine, then you're talking about cutting into. The air traffic control system, support for education, all of these different areas that are themselves directly in the wheelhouse of people's lives and are also popular, even if people want to cut spending, not the individual programs. So they're in a box on that front. If I had to guess, my guess is that what they're going to fall back on, which is a fig leaf, is creation of another Simpson Bowls Commission that will simply be tasked with coming up with a plan to reduce the debt. Joe Manchin will probably propose it. I saw he had an op-ed in the Post yesterday about how we have to deal with the debt. And his proposal is that we take the discretionary domestic budget of the United States and cap it at a 1% increase for the next 10 years, which does not in any way take into account emergencies that might occur, Another pandemic, for example, more disasters occurring, which we know will happen with climate change, growth in population. It cannot work. It's just a a really reckless proposal if you look at it in any way. But they'll get the fig leaf of some commission that will come up with a proposal that, of course, will include changes in Medicare and Social Security and will almost undoubtedly include many of them proposing a tax increase. Republicans will reject it. Liberal Democrats will reject it. It won't go anywhere, but it may be the fig leaf to get us past what could be otherwise a devastating crisis.
0: Yeah, and just to to kind of wrap on this topic and on the, the speech, something we didn't touch on that I thought was very interesting was that at the beginning of the speech, along with all the economic stuff, he was praising and focused on bipartisanship. This man, it is in his blood. It doesn't matter that the country has changed. It doesn't matter that the the media environment, that the fundraising environment has changed. This man still believes that he and Mitch McConnell can get drinks after work and figure this out. And as much as I don't believe that is true, I hope Joe Biden is right and I am wrong. I hope that he can work with these Republicans as crazy as they are, as extreme as they are, to fix some of the big issues facing this country. Because if he can't, we are in a much worse place two years from now than we are today. And as much as that, you know, my democratic heart will be happy that we, you know, march to victory in 2024, there's real suffering going on in this country now. There are real problems that will only get worse if unaddressed now. Whether you think of that as the debt, whether you think of that as child poverty, There are a bunch of problems that we will face over the next two years. I don't think that he and Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell can work it out, but by God, I hope he is right and I'm wrong. You know, one of the
1: things that may happen, and I thought that was extremely artful of him, and it fits the zeitgeist of at least a sizable portion of the country, is there's a real possibility that within this two year period, If only for a few weeks, Democrats could be in the majority in the House. Remember, the Republican majority is very thin. We already know one of their members, Greg Stubbe of Florida, fell off his roof doing some maintenance and is in the hospital and maybe out for a little bit of time. We uh, saw the spectacle of George Santos being ripped apart on the floor by Mitt Romney and who said he shouldn't even be here anymore. And Santos has to be very close to being indicted, indicted on what are clear, blatant campaign finance violations. Indicted in Brazil, his time in Congress is probably limited. That means several months, where the margin could be down to three. We know that there are 150 of these Republicans who are anti-vaxxers and campaign that way. My guess is half of them have been vaccinated, and they're just doing this cynically, but. We could end up with several of them in the hospital for several weeks. If Democrats take a majority, even for a brief period of time, that's the time to bring up and pass permanent child tax credit, the child care provisions, the universal pre K, and uh, all of those other things, and insulin junk fees, and force the Senate Republicans to decide whether they're going to be bipartisan or be against. Very popular things, and then there are some of these issues he emphasized mental health and criminal justice that are at least enough below the radar that a Kevin McCarthy who wants to show some progress on something might be convinced to you know give in and let a bill through that could result in a signing ceremony, so it's possible at least that it'll work in some of these areas, even if it doesn't, it was the right thing for him to do tactically, and uh, in terms of the norms of the system.
0: Thanks for joining us. We'd appreciate it if you'd rate, review, and subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. We also hope that you share this episode with your friends on social media. If you liked this conversation and want even more, become a member of the DSR Network and get a bonus segment where Norm and I talk about the quote-unquote oversight of the Republicans in the House words matter is a production of the dsr network the executive producer of the dsr network is chris cotton and the producer of words matter is me grant hafer the next episode of words matter will be in your podcast feeds on february 17th see you then